or if anybody had more information or more color about what was behind that, because it was very general. It was not specific. And we all know that Israel is doing a lot. Um, I I know from this space that Israel is doing a lot, but I wasn't sure, you know, what what Zelensky might have been referring to. Thank you. Blue Spear. Iron Dome. Iron Dome doesn't help. This doesn't help. It goes against small arms and the likes. The concept of it works, but what they want is Blue Spear. Is that anti-ship, Axel? Yeah, it works as an anti-ship, but it can be utilized for things in flat territory just as well. Its seeker is different than the other anti-ship missile as uh, people are used to. It is significantly more effective. But yes, as an anti-ship missile, it is a ton of good. Thank you, sir. I think it also should be noted, right? Zelensky does this most of the time. It's like, thank you. But also, if you could send some more stuff, please, that'd be great. Um, and at least in Israel's case, this must be, you know, kind of a way to get the local, say, Ukrainian community as well uh, to be able to kind of apply more pressure to their local politicians in Israel. Um, um, this in is... general, because you could also like to have, in addition to that, a few more MLRS systems, which are absolutely fantastic, but Israel has not given to anyone yet. Are they domestic Israeli production or M270 yes. derivatives? No, no, this is um, a development which went far beyond what the M270 ever was. Ooh, interesting. Okay, somebody has to explain this at some point. Um, Aaron? So, yeah, um, on, on the M270 front, I, I've, I've seen some footage of um, two of them in action in Ukraine from last night by the looks of it. Yeah, Walter put it in the space, uh, sorry, in the space, in the nest. It's the second most recent uh, tweet in the nest for anyone who's interested. There's a video of HIMARS in action in Ukraine, reportedly. I mean, it's. I think it's at night time, so it's kind of hard to tell. But No, which is, which is good, right? Um, all of those uh, operators were already trained by last week, about, uh, what is it now, nine days ago. Uh, it's very good to see that they're putting their newfound expertise to good use. Yeah, but just they need at least fifty more of them. So they do. So they do. John. Morning, all. Can you hear me? Brilliant. I don't Thank care. You. Um, just wondered if uh, I could get an update from one of the guys in Europe who perhaps caught. Uh, the speech from Macron yesterday evening. There was a bit of a, a bit of a blow up from Anglo Twitter, uh, suggesting that that he was sort of at least attempting to row back to a degree on the um, on the announcement of Ukrainians' uh, candidate status. I, I'm not quite sure. There was a lot of two, you know, back and forth going on. Um, I just wondered if if anybody's got a clear interpretation of what was said. Thank you. Um, ben, did you listen to the actual thing? Because the only thing I, I, I looked at were English translations of it because my French is no good. Um, my French is terrible as well. No, to be honest, I did not uh, see it. See it passed by all the place. Roger, thank you. So my generous interpretation of the, you know, the, the, the spot translations that I read, the most generous interpretation is that he wants to... Um, make himself and his special ideas look good. Uh, specifically, the European Political Union is kind of a second tier of political integration below that of the EU, um, as well as, I don't know, put public pressure on other EU member states to be more supportive of his grand ideas of 
treaty revision that would lead to a common European army, etc., etc. Um, it's like, see, we give we give you this fine. Ukraine is in the normal procedures now. Can we please have the political union only for you know God knows who else? And can we uh, get these treaty revisions that I'm really set on, even though half of the other European countries just said no to those like a month and a half ago. Um, I, I think he's kind of more pushing for that. I don't really understand why beyond some, you know, illusions of grandeur or uh, wanting France to be very important in, in some way, uh, because those don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. And it's clear why not, nor the Nordics, nor the major Eastern flank countries, nor the Baltics are particularly enthused about that because they've seen how, uh, you know, France and Germany weren't exactly the most proactive of countries. I think that's a fair, fair thing to say, right? They weren't the most proactive of countries when it came to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Why would you want them run, running a common European army if you're Poland or if you're the Baltics when they might throttle and slow down your own response as well as, especially if you're the Baltics, you know, make direct cooperation with countries like the UK maybe a little bit more difficult because the chain of command would, under Macron's ideas, probably run through somewhere in the, in in Paris and or Berlin, right? And that just doesn't seem very appealing if you are right next to Russia and you're being, you know, among other quite heavily supported by the Brits and the Americans. You don't want an alternative to NATO. You just want more NATO. There will never be a European army. There will be European armies. Yeah, and it's all it's all fine and well to have lots of, you know, to have European armies and to have, like, enhanced cooperation in some way beyond what's going on now. That, that's perfectly fine, right? That, that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, talk more, do more joint exercises, uh, do some more, you know, ad hoc joint... Um, Whenever peacekeeping missions happen, it's 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 good to have more you know, combined operations within those and so on. But but there is no what Macron is proposing makes no sense to me intuitively, and nobody's been able to explain the 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 actual rationale offered to me either. Now, if anybody wants to try, you're you're very welcome. I'm eager to learn what the actual logic behind it is. But I just I just don't see it thus far, and I don't think that Axel or John see it either. So. No, that's a that's a great summary. Thank you. Um, so, we, if we're going to boil it down, it's basically the latest episode of the Macron Show, but nothing to see here. I I would say as much. The my big worry about Macron yesterday wasn't even that speech. It was what Vucic, of, you know, the Serbian president, said about eight hours prior to that, four hours prior to that, whatever, before the the candidacy decision was leaked by uh, by the Luxembourg Prime Minister. Um. And Vucic was saying something along the lines of basically really heavily legitimizing Macron's European political union. And now I don't know how much he was doing that for, from self-interest in the sense that Vucic doesn't really want to go into the EU, but would be, you know, and, and is quite happy to be in a in a lower tier association that would still give lots of benefits and would kind of mollify the pro-Europeanists domestically. At the same time, he'd be able to still criticize the EU just as much as he does now. How much it's uh, Vucic acting as a proxy for Putin and how much Vucic just, you know, tries to get something back from Macron on a more bilateral level uh, by supporting uh, by supporting uh, Macron's ideas. Uh, but that really terrified me. Because 
honestly, whenever you're on the same side as the guy who hangs out with Putin like seven times a year uh, and is really buddy-buddy with him, you're probably not on the right side. This is just my, my assessment. Who is that guy who's hanging? Is it Macron or is it... No, uh, Because Macron is only hanging up with Putin like five times a year, so... Yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, Vucic doesn't get the long table. Even uh, here, it counts. It counts to say credit where credit is due, right? But on a more historic note, whose nation was the diplomat from who paid for the two Slovenian lower-level princesses who garnered the Tsar's attention to then allow him to support hoodwinkingly the assassination? of Archduke Ferdinand. Hmm, let me think. What language could this guy have spoken in St. Petersburg? Ah, of course, French. Axel, either you're going to tell us a great story, or I'm going to hate you forever. So, The story is long time written. I didn't have to tell you the story. There are many books, and there are even French historians who've come around to it. The original, st original sin of Europe at least found its fuse with French diplomacy. Really? I'm, I was sure it was uh, German tariffs that did us in. Oh, yes. Allons-y. <laughs> Actually, if you don't um, now recount the story in at least five sentences, we're going to get accused of being cryptic again. I will dig out the link for Ben and uh, put it in the nest later today. But the story is very simple. There are two... Uh, rather bewitching and beguiling and very interesting, but also insidiously uh, in the in foreign employ. Uh, younger princesses from an area close to your home, or to your origin, let's put it this way, who were at the court of the Russian Tsar and stayed there for a good two years. And um, people knew how to get their attention so that they could a whistle into the ear of the Tsar, the key elements of European policy as designed and hoped for by some very, very insidious people who like to see Serbia rise up. Who could that have been? Oh, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll just note, actually, the only princesses anywhere close to where I'm from were all Habsburg ones. So unless they were yes. plotting against their old, their old cousin, <laughs> then, you know... Now you're counting for intermarriage and wedding and the likes, but yes, but they were still from your region, my darling, and they did speak your language. I, I don't claim them, I'll put it this way. I want to see a film about it, I don't want to read a crummy article. That was just a moment of levity, let's move on. Yes. Uh, let's move I... on. Oh, don't Ben, it? go ahead, and then I'll, I want to talk about the US Senate. Ben. Okay, uh... No, maybe talk about the U.S. Senate. I'm sorry, Charlie. The the questions I have for you are for for some some other time. Don't worry. Uh, no, no, no. Ben, Ben, go go right ahead with it. We can. Okay, um, okay. The U.S. Senate is currently asleep, so they're, they're not doing anything <laughs> in the meantime. All right. Um, I wanted to know something about Odessa, because I've always been told that uh, Odessaites, well, were were like a third of the population was Jewish, but they were not considered considering themselves as Yiddish. Uh, is there still a... Is it true? And is there still a difference? And um, it, is there... Because uh, Yiddish is meant to be a bit of a uh, medieval relic, whereas Odessa was the, was the equivalent of New York in, uh, in southern Ukraine. 
Um, so is there is there a difference? Is there are there actually several Jewish cultures in Ukraine? Uh, can you well, Yiddish was called jargon, jargon. Like it it was not a prestigious language. The first uh, World Yiddish Congress was in 1908, and that's the same year the first math textbook was produced and followed shortly after uh, an ethnographic revolution that had happened in, you know, the 1880s and 90s, 25 years after uh, similar nationalisms had happened with other languages. So Yiddish was seen as a jargon. It was seen as a non-status language. There's the language of prayer. Uh, this is, this is uh, the language that... Uh, the texts were written in uh, for for women to pray or study, right? Um, in 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 communities that were rather patriarch patriarchal and repressive, and that restricted, uh, you know, uh, textual knowledge of of scriptural sources and things. Uh, but I, I mean. The, this was very much if it's in New York, it's in New York and people are speaking the languages. Right. So I think Yiddish is a, a, a language of utility and a language of daily life. And at some points there's poets and there's there's people writing literature who make it or take it as a language of identity. And then there's this idea of Yiddishkeit, um, which doesn't really have a great translation. It means Jewishness if you're going to translate it directly. But it, it, it also has the obligations. It implies the obligations of a, a Jewish person and in, in a spiritual and material sense as well. And, I mean, the word Yiddish is Jewish. So it, it, it very much, like, people may have been looking toward Russian and looking toward other vistas from the ports you know and other languages and ideas but uh yeah people spoke yiddish the jews spoke yiddish in uh odessa and uh they they read yiddish books when they became available and there were yiddish schools uh for the short period when the soviet regime was uh tolerating and in some cases actually promoting uh, the development of national languages uh, in various countries. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Um, I'd love to go to Washington now, if someone could take me there. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Charlie. Um, I think it's good to have these, uh, you know, periods of cultural discovery on this space, uh, especially in the European morning, when we get to not confuse uh, too many of our friends from the other side of the Atlantic uh, about these concepts of... Um, countries with languages and peoples and cultures um sorry that's a bit of a jab never mind um let's you mean, uh you mean tribeca yeah i mean all, all, all manner of things right i just i'm just glad we have an american historian here from that side of the atlantic to come and teach the europeans in the morning about these things <laughs> that's what that's why i just said it i mean this is uh <laughs> New York is the ultimate preserver of all these cultures still. I love you guys. You're great. Okay, where were we? Right. Um Axel, overnight, uh, because you were you were awake observing the bonfire night or whatever you call it. I, I can't pronounce the Estonian version. Um Yanitev. 
It's not difficult. Yanipev. Yanipev. Okay, sorry. I can pronounce it. I just didn't know how to map the, the, the letters to sounds. Yanipev. Um, have you discussed the recommendation of the US Senate, what is it, Foreign Affairs Committee, something along those lines, uh, to the Secretary of State? As to how to use long-range missiles? No, as to designating Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. Well, that is what we discussed last week, but we didn't discuss it here during Yanipev because none of the officials were here. As you can imagine, Yanipev is a family thing, so you don't gather around with all your friends and colleagues from work. But no, and uh, I'm glad to hear that it moves. I mean, Peter Doran was indicating that it might move uh, more quickly than we had hoped for after the discussion we had, what is it, two days ago? Or was it yesterday? When was that? In this... uh, so it was two, two, two days ago, I think. Two days ago. Um, no, but, but so the, the foreign, foreign Affairs Committee, Foreign Services Committee, whatever it's called, uh, of the U.S. Senate has made its recommendation to the U.S. Secretary of State uh, some hours ago, now not too many hours ago, uh, about 12 hours maybe, to designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism along, along with Iran and North Korea, a couple of others. Um, so the next steps are for the U.S. Secretary of State to do so. And then once he has done so, then it actually goes to vote with both the lower and the upper house. That is to say the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, at large. But this is an important step in, in that process we have been discussing. Of course, we've dis been discussing it for a while, but it's good to note that it has actually uh, moved in one in terms of one of the you know official steps that it has to uh, that it has to um, what, perform proceed proceed yes very good but it's great <laughs> isn't it great isn't it great let's let's slap ourselves on on the back and say finally finally they are listening to us absolutely I'm joking no I'm joking of course I mean it's it's just great to see this because it is uh, this is the ultimate fuse this is the key cornerstone in going after the Russian, yeah, overall security interests, merit of their economic position all, all over the world. Exactly. Nothing and the biggest significance that. of this, were it to happen, right, the biggest significance of this is a much wider range of, a much wider range of sanctions, especially secondary uh, financial and economic sanctions coming into force, making it a lot more difficult for Russia to trade with third countries. This isn't about you know, the US as much. This isn't about Europe as much. This is about effectively uh, putting it to, you know, any, any, anyone else, pretty much, that either you cut out Russia or you get cut out yourselves, right? Um, and I think that is very significant. Uh, and, and that's something that's very much underestimated. This isn't about so much about the US response to Russia anymore. No, this is about the US flexing its muscle and uh, making third-party states not play with Russia anymore. No individual can then facilitate, collaborate, cooperate with, or be con conducive to any action by any Russian counterpart or a counterpart who is conducive themselves, meaning you can't be involved in any transaction which is benefiting Russia. Let that sink in. And, and a good illustration here would be things like, say, the aerospace industry, right? Um, aircraft are complicated things. 
uh, Russia is already severely limited when it comes to the acquisition of, say, spare parts for Airbus and Boeing aircraft. Um, but this would move it beyond that, right? This would move it to the point where third parties would be holding completely unable to provide spare parts, even, you know, unlicensed spare parts effectively to, for for Western-made jets to uh, to Russia. And the really funny thing is even, even Russian-made jets have a very large proportion of Western parts. Say the Sukhoi Superjet 100, um, that is, that, that's full of Western parts. It's about 80% Western parts, I think. Um, and even the Illusions are now having trouble staying up with an Illusion 76 apparently having crashed uh, overnight somewhere near Moscow, if uh, my reading is correct. Uh, let's uh, let's go on to Jason. Morning, Jason. Evening, Jason. Whatever time it is, go ahead. Uh, hi. Yeah. So um, I, I've talked to you before about uh, uh, Ukraine's uh, lack of rifles. So this is a possible uh, thing. I, I also was mentioning that United States, and I looked up the exact number, um, has uh, purchased over two uh, point seven million uh, M16s before nineteen sixty three. And these also can be adapted with a great grenade launcher. Um, the unmodified M16, the, uh, the M4 is the one that we use currently, but the old one that would probably be in uh, storage was considered a, a downgrade from the AK variants due to the malfunctioning in the jungles of Vietnam. I was wondering if, if it would even be worth to give these rifles to Ukraine, since all of them would need to be inspected and gunsmithed due to corrosion and wear. And they also sell for about $1,000 each, which would go uh, against the drawdown in the military budget. So would it be better to spend it on a 3D printer or would the animus of the M16 entitle it to another mobilization in the new Cold War in Ukraine? Thank you. Excellent. I know nothing about that. Well, um, when refurbished, and as he said, when gunsmith, it's still a very decent rifle. However, Western nations, including mine, but many of them, have significant large stocks of uh, recently phased out rifles, uh, which are superior to the M16. And they can be used, should be used, and some of them are being used. It just needs a little bit more arm twisting. And um, they are also in close proximity, and most of them reasonably well oiled, maintained, and definitely younger. And they all shoot, um, yeah, NATO ammunition. So in that regard, I think the U.S. is better advised to concentrate on heavy armor and pressuring others. But that's just my view. I mean, the stock is there, and there's a lot of lot, lot of good to be done with it. But there may be better use other rifles and you have a lot more modern rifles too which uh, definitely ukraine will want yeah i was i was thinking that they probably haven't done it for a reason it's just why would you bring these old guns out of storage uh, they probably cause more problems than would help i figured that they may uh use those as a, a sort of like if things get really bad last last ditch effort they are good guns uh m16s are outstanding guns in a lot of ways especially if you don't have uh, I mean, you have to clean and oil it. It likes oil a lot, um, but it's it's a functional weapon, and it, it it it. I mean, even without a lot of gunsmithing, it's pretty darn accurate. You know, like 
yeah, a lot of barrel corrosion is going to ruin that. But, you know, like it's not, it's, it's not a terribly complicated or difficult weapon, but if they're old and there are like, as Axel said, much better alternatives, right. Uh, then uh, it costs a lot of money to send them and a lot of time. And you, uh, if, if, if they have similar issues to the AKs, uh, which other rifles aren't going to have, uh, just as far as having uh, accuracy and other sort of precision things that aren't quite as attuned as a more or a newer newer rifle. But what rifles are you speaking of, Axel, that are being sent from your country? Well, Germany has a vast storage of recently uh, phased out or uh, transitioned weapons. Um, and they are reasonably well maintained. And uh, uh, <laughs> even the current chancellery and the current uh, minister of defense would have no argument uh, to not send them, given the fact that they're definitely not heavy artillery or MLRS or anything like it. And we don't call them leopards either. So, and hey, large, vast amounts of them are there. And uh, NATO ammunition galore, especially since rifle training uh, and shooting training in NATO has been reconfigured. What is it now? Uh, more than a decade ago. So ammunition is not a problem at all. Shooting with them is good. Heckler and Koch makes very good kit. So I don't think that we should worry about that. And by the way, the French also transitioned to different rifles and um, some of them are very good. So that's what I would be thinking of. And if I, if I were sitting somewhere in the MOD in London, uh, I would probably cable the Germans a friendly notice that if they really want some other toys in future, why don't, why don't you some, send someone to two of your storages and fill the trucks? And please, pronto. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, I, I was, it's just a hypothetical. Okay, thank you. Axel, uh, a listener uh, wrote to me saying that the AK-74 is better than the M-16. Please discuss. <laughs> I'm, I'm not an M-16 specialist. Uh, I've seen this um, uh, piece in action. I've, I think we've shot with them twice in my life. Um, it's a decent piece of kit. Um, the AK, yeah, well, I would... I wouldn't compare it. It's just, it's different in terms of its accuracy. Right. It's I mean, anything, one of them's got springs and one of them's a direct impingement gun. So it's apples and oranges in a way, right? Yeah. No, I think the, the listener is just uh, picturing himself as having to defend himself against someone coming at him and shooting. And then probably the spray of the AK-74 AK is better, but hey, it's, it's different. It's uh, different weapons, but still. They're both effective at killing people. The question is, what kind of weapon would you want the Ukrainians to have to have not just parity, but uh, better accurate, say, deliver a bigger punch power at higher precision at a distance? And I think there is stuff which um, certain weapons, weapons suppliers and weapon system manufacturers in continental Europe, some of them speaking German, and uh, one of them even being co-founded by people who spoke Yiddish should actually deliver. But there you go. Right. And a lot of a lot of like the kinds of uh, more advanced, not more advanced, but more recently developed rounds like 6.5 Creedmoor and, and things that are in this category that are replacing 
762 and 556 uh haven't replaced it in any sense so these these like the 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 optimal kinds of calibers don't have a whole lot of guns built around them and when you're talking about military supply you you have a much much more limited array of of options i think at the moment unless you're talking about special operators um but it'd be great to see uh you know just any i think more rifles the better i i i think the the problem with having so many rifles in the country's in the country comes after the war right um but i i i don't i i don't see it as a like it's just with the rhythms of shipping and war like what makes the most sense to send through choked border points at any moment right yeah i'm sure the a team of uh, us procurement officers um commuting between the Polish border and the center of Ukraine on a regular basis, I mean, daily, um, who have this well under control. And they typically only need to press a button and then organize the logistics. <clears throat> Let's put it this way. Uh, you can't buy specific sniper rifles from Barrett anymore, not even in the future, because everything they had, and uh, I mean, everything that is relevant, <laughs> and everything they can produce, is relevant is purchase be glad you bought your 50 caliber six months ago i guess <laughs> yeah. so domen if you want to operate a proper gun turret you have to come here yeah i i've never had a wish to operate a proper gun turret um myself uh so i'll i'll leave that all to you axel ben what kind of wonderful small arms could france provide if it were deigning to do so I, I might have, uh, sorry, I might have inconvenienced Ben by having him review Macron's comments from last night, seeing that, um, you know, his French is a, a few levels better than mine. Um, well, well, Ben so is busy. He's still, he's still beating his head against the kitchen table? Kitchen table, wall, hammer, you know, who knows. Um, Axel, Siktivkar um, in Russia, is that a desirable a wonder- place to visit? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, I have to say, Mondi, uh, which is uh, essentially nothing else than uh, the South African uh, group, uh, which incorporated Noisy. At that point in time, this was run by the operation there was run by the Austrians. Noisy built uh, one of the best, um, yeah, new uh, processing facilities in order to generate pulp and paper. And uh, absolutely stunning stuff. And they did this in the 90s. So really good people. Uh, um, a good acquaintance of mine actually ran the project. And uh, yeah, this is in the Republic of Komi. And we're back to the Ugric tribes uh, who are so uh, clearly related with the Estonians. Uh, because the Komi also were subjugated and terrorized and then decimated to the ground in a very, very insidious uh, genocide by the Russians during their Russian Empire. And uh, Sikhivka is a, is a tad cold. But, um... Well, in, uh, in November, uh, they will be blessed by the Russian version of Eurovision that is going to be held there. You've got to be kidding. Yeah, well, the, the musical transition, the, the musical tra- tradition of the Komi is, is fantastic. It's like in Estonia. Let it go. They have this wonderful oral tradition for all their narratives and 
uh, and they sing it. It's absolutely stunning. Very, very nice. Very beautiful. Something tells me the Komi musical tradition is going to be somewhat underrepresented. It, uh, uh... Yeah, one would think. <laughs> no, sorry, I thought it would amuse you somewhat. Uh, especially since they're this. putting it in the middle of bloody nowhere. I wouldn't say that. It is It is far out there, yes. but uh, uh, And in summer, you don't want to hang, hang dead over a fence there when the first uh, mosquito population comes up. Because then, yeah, I mean, you have to stay inside or uh, wear, a, yeah, some kind of a decon suit. Like a beekeeper suit, yes. So, but seriously, he's putting his song festival, the Russian version of the, their song festival, into Siktivkar. Yep, yep, yep. That's, one of the big that's, sports that's, that's exactly what it is, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, they're so nuts. Sorry, I had to stop laughing before I admitted myself again. Um, but seriously, I mean, our Hungarian friends would say, Ishtenet. Not far from Siktivkar, um, apparently a, a compressor factory in the Euros. All the workers have gone on strike because uh, they haven't gotten any salaries for months. Uh, and the factory owner's response was that, you know, during the Great Patriotic War, nobody got paid. So they should shut up and, you know, contribute to victory. And does he does he drive a Bentley? I don't think he'd stoop that low. Yeah, and one... I think one factory worked in 10 died of hunger during the Great Factory of Tukor. So, enjoy. Well, follow the money. Where does the factory owner have his money? Cyprus? Just, you know, playing the odds here. Um, in further news, apparently the new date for referenda in Zaporizhia and Kherson oblasts, you know, the sort of staged nonsense that Russians have previously made in Crimea and uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, is now slated for September 11th. So unlike previously, when they were when they kept moving them by a week here, a couple of weeks there, they're now moving it by a whole several months. So uh, I, th- I think they're they're kind of slowly realizing that their grip on power and ability to retain the areas is uh, ever so slowly loosening. The only vote they're going to hold on September 11 in Kherson is. Uh six feet under in the cemetery. And lastly, in Russian news, uh, they are now producing Russian cola. It is a Ruskaya cola, uh, and it's adorned with sort of an impression of an icon of, I believe, Virgin Mary on it. Um, It's not entirely clear whether this is a manufactured soft drink or merely uh, the not so uh, not non-radioactive water from somewhere on the Kola Peninsula, which which I would be voting for anyway. What you know, is the funny thing is uh, this segment is, is is really turning out to be uh, Radio Yerevan, isn't it? Is it true that Russians have made their own cola? Well, in principle, it is true, except they haven't made it; they bored for it, uh, and uh, they've had it all along. I just it hasn't been bottled yet. Okay, please send all your questions to the uh, editor and our producer at Radio Yerevan, whether something is true or not. I'm sorry, I was hanging laundry. Are we talking about Baikal Cola? No, we're talking about the Ruskaya Cola, which apparently they've uh, started bottling now, uh, in absence of the ability of the availability of you know actual cola syrup or even Pepsi syrup. Ah, a new competitor to Baikal. Hmm. But you know what the real big problem is, and what I really will miss is the fact that you can't buy Piatozero anymore in the West. That's really terrible. The only vodka you could drink from, of course, the area close to Lake Baikal, but with fresh water. But but why would you drink vodka? This is my question forever and ever. I, I use it. I use it for striping wood, of course. No, I I have a good Polish friend. He uses vodka extensively. 
to uh, to be able to dilute uh, his various maceration experiments of fruit in Palinka. Exactly. The problem, you know, bring it, the problem, bring it down from eighty something percent to a more palatable sixty. Yes, Ben. The problem is that you're too handsome. You've never had, a, you've never been sad, and women have never made you sad. For the rest of us, they, you know, vodka can be helpful in this case. You really have consumed too much Russian literature. Yeah, I wish it came from there. Uh, even in, even in such a case, there are better things to consume. Uh, but I won't bring up specifics. Um, so, Joe. Good morning, Gaman. Good morning, all. Um, I've seen reports of... Okay, this has probably been mentioned, but I don't know. I've been really busy, so I, I didn't have my um, earbuds in. Um, but um, the Russian Navy has withdrawn six missile-carrying ships from Sevastopol. And five of them are moving northward, according to the head of Odessa Regional Military Administration. Have you guys um, seen this? Um, I'm just having a bit of a deja vu because they said exactly the same thing either two or three nights ago. Uh, but it's entirely plausible that Russians are doing exactly the same thing as they've done three nights ago because, you know, like we've seen Chernobyl for one. Axel, any, any context? I haven't seen any news in that regard this morning because, as you know, I just woke up from the Yanni path-infused uh, late morning sleep, um, which is the typical thing Estonians and uh, their people who live here do on such days. I haven't checked anything. I will. And uh, let's see what comes out of it. I would expect them to do the same thing over and over and over again because in order to project force, they need to sail. It's noteworthy that most recently, everyone who has sailed, sailed later than initially announced when people went completely all haywire and giddy. Oh God, the whole Russian fleet has sailed. Nobody had even embarked. And then when they finally sailed, only half of them sailed. The rest stayed for maintenance. And then they returned to base very quickly. So a shipyard called it last night, or was it 6 p.m. or something? He said, all quiet on the board, on the Black Sea, and uh, that was not Erich Maria Remarque, and uh, yeah, return to base. So now they have to sail again. That's what they do. Okay, so it's basically just a, a, a show of, let's say, show of power, as it were. Yeah, that's what it should be. And if, uh, if and when they have an opportunity to shoot a missile, they will probably do it and annoy us a bit and try to kill people, which is one of the tendencies they seem to have. Um, and uh, if they are stupid, unlucky, or make a mistake in their say, in their say approach, uh, the Ukrainians might get lucky in turn and uh, sink another ship. But so far, more recently, their discipline has been reasonably fair, despite the fact that we're still missing the Baikov. And um, we had an oil patch in between two gas rigs, so let's see. Maybe that was the Baikov. Well, let's hope uh, some, some of those harpoons uh... Put to good use. Absolutely. When was the Baikov last seen? Um, I, I don't remember. I did hear it yesterday. But I, 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 think a, I think a day before the um, before the oil patch appeared, or two days before. One or two. One of the two. Okay. Thank you. It's about five days ago. Senor. Speaking of Spanish, I've got an Italian question for you, Axel. Do you have uh, appetite for metal? Uh, appetite for what? Metal, steel. Depends. Uh, uh, pig iron, no. Cold roll bars, maybe. 
um, specialty sheet, fine imprint, um, Nirosta. Yeah. Well, I don't know exactly what it is, but apparently it goes into nuclear submarines and tanks. Sorry, Sorry two nuclear submarines, what? <clears throat> um, the Department of State, or maybe I'm making a mistake. Okay, somebody, either Ukrainian or American, is accusing the, the Italian company Daniele to be producing uh, specialty steel that is then exported to Russia for their submarines and tanks. And said company says, not true. Do you think it's still possible for some European countries to be producing metal and the side of elements that are then used for in the Russian war machine? Uh, let me remind myself, in which country are you domiciled then? Italy. Ah, exactly. Yeah, right. I don't know what the descendants of Usinor Sassilor are doing these days, but they had various capacities which were quite um, quite substantial. Um, I don't think that the, the Italians can afford to do that further. They may have done that, uh, but they will certainly have stopped it now. Um, I think the looming state sponsor of terrorism discussion will put a stop to all of that if it ever has happened uh, in recent days. So let's put it this way. But uh, other than that, I've, I would only expect the French to be able to do it. Okay, good. So regardless of what they're saying, this these uh, sources of resources will, will, be, will be... Yeah, I think that people need to wake up to a world where um, Russia and everybody who deals with Russia or a Russian or facilitates them dealing with something that includes, by the way, Swiss banks. And this is where it's also, I mean, the solid rule of unintended consequence. It's a very, very intended consequence. Uh, anyone who's dealing with them uh, is then a blip on the radar screen and should get some last words in. Sergio, you, you want to participate? Um, uh, funnily enough, the tweet that I saw which was only 12 minutes old when I saw it, has been deleted. So it, it could well have been a, a mistake. Yeah, exactly, because Moscow Centre makes mistakes when dispelling narrative. Well, yeah, okay. Thank you. Axel, since we're in the subject of um, production, uh, you, you heard the story Domin mentioned about the, um, this company that is not being paid anymore. It's as if money was tight in Russia. Why don't they just uh, crank up the printing machine? So that they have more paper to burn? No, but yeah, but at the same well, time... Well, I hear, I hear they have an excellent paper factory in 65. Exactly. <laughs> and there's a fantastic newsprint paper factory in Kondoporga, uh, who all could cr crank out uh, specialty paper if necessary. But there you go. No, of course you don't print money uh, if you are in a cycle of failing import substitution. Uh, because then the first thing you're going to do is to create hyperinflation. And uh, yeah, but there you go. What should I say? Yeah, but not paying, your, not paying your workers and having your factories shut one by one is not exactly a, a great cure. And if I remember well my Economics 101, there's one thing worse than hyperinflation, it's deflation, because deflation never stops. Never stop. Well, if you've made yourself a pariah, um, there is very little you can do about it. Try not to disconnect yourself from the global trades uh, um, by means of your political decisions, and you can pay your worker. 
Yes, I agree with you, but I think that's one ship that's gone back to Nova Severe uh, a long time ago. So yeah, I don't understand. They, they can't. What I'm saying is they can't get out of the cycle, and I think you do understand this. There's no opportunity for them. Um, there will be areas of their economy which are, remain unpaid, and therefore the people will remain unpaid. The question is, how much can and will they suffer? silently and calmly and um, where in which segments and sectors are they not suffering uh, are they not suffering it lightly and where would they rebel and which ones therefore are both critical in terms of timing uh, so that they funnel whatever resources they have at hand and which ones uh, they are not able to control without nationalizing them and don't forget when they nationalize them they still can't give them much money oh, i assume they're all been de facto nationalized at a, yeah, they're all nationalized. There's almost no difference in the practical. Yeah, there is, there is, there is one. And that's the fact that the payment doesn't come directly from the state coffers. At the moment, you still have the interruption that there's private companies who are not being paid or where the owners are, have skipped the funds and therefore depleted working capital resources so they can't tide, tide themselves over. So they fall prey to their situation at the moment. So they can't export respectively, can't make money from people who want to buy, buy products which they can't produce because they can't substitute the required spare parts and components they need in order to produce them. That's the whole point. We've interrupted their chains and we've done this very deliberately and very well. And this is why they're starting to fail. You'll see more cracks coming. Uh, I think I was asked, what, a month ago, how long I would say it took? And I said two. So wait for the next 30 days. It's summer. People will need money, and there won't be any from any. Yes, um, there's this brilliant um, Ukrainian economist who mentioned that the number of distressed loans has basically doubled in Russia over the past month. And yes, I'm trying to remember the name of that economist. It's a lady, and I asked her to come over to the to the space. Ben, in the meantime, um, could we review Macron's comments uh, from last night? The stuff that uh, John asked about earlier. In- you had seen this, had the look at. What did Macron actually say? Does it have any significance to anything, or is it just um, a bunch of hot air? Okay, it's a bunch of hot air. It, he says nothing. The only thing is that he said it. He says it in such a complicated manner that for a minute you're not sure what he's saying, and you have to consider the possibility that he's saying something either smart or consequential. The fact is that he's saying that there's two types of countries. The first type is those that that have already engaged in um, uh, applications and candidacy uh, into the European Union, and those are sorted out. They will be part of the, of the Union at some point if they if they do enough uh, uh, changes, etc. There, and there is a second part, which is uh, countries that for a number of reasons will never be and should never be part of the EU. Um, he does not mention exactly who he's talking about, but I guess um, that could be Georgia, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and maybe Turkey. And for these, he proposes uh, a sort of a special agreement: uh, you're in, but you're not in, sort of sort of deal. And and then I, I assume that he would have liked Ukraine and Moldavia to be part of that second category: in, but not in. But he says that's the only thing he says clearly uh, is that 
due to present circumstances, we, he wants uh, Ukraine and Moldavia in the EU. So he's saying nothing. He's just saying, well, uh, uh, Albania and Macedonia will be in at some point. Uh, Moldavia and Ukraine will be in the EU at some point. And other countries won't be in, but some because they're not in, that we cannot integrate them into a structure. It's not exact. It, it's, it's a lot of words for not much. But he still has this cultural imperialism in it, right? I uh, saying only due to present circumstances are these two countries, which by implication and therefore inferred, not having done their homework, uh, be allowed in. That's quite nice from someone who comes from France. Yes, he's um, he's clearly saying that if it wasn't for the Russian invasion, the, um, he would not support it would not support the uh, the entry of Ukraine and Moldavia into the. For, cult- for cultural reasons, no less, that's what he's saying, because they are second-class cultures from his perspective. That's evident by what he says. Okay, that's not what he says, and absolutely nothing is evident in what he says. Even what he does say is not evident, so the subtext, there. there's no subtext, forget about it. He, he does not say what you're, what you're saying about, uh, about them, it's just saying that... Okay, okay. He, but the one thing, if you want to... to take a bit more juice um, he's saying that the, the time basically the time to integrate Europe and to make all the changes is getting longer and longer and longer the further away you get from the core and sometimes the the length of integration is beating the interest of integration itself and that's that's what he says there's no mention of politics. Um, I want to jump to you on next because it's this question from an hour ago. Thanks. Um, ben, thanks ever so much for, for having a look at that for us. I, I really appreciate it. Um, one follow-up question, if, if I may, please. Um, one of the, the, the accounts I read of this yesterday evening was from Lawrence, is it Lawrence Norman, the, the Wall Street Journal guy, I think. Yeah, um, Lawrence Norman, yes. Thank, thank you. Um, he included, I mean, what he seemed to be a direct quotation um, from Macron saying that NATO had already rejected uh, Ukrainian membership. Was that something you picked up, Ben? Not in the question, I, not in the video I heard, but clearly it was, you know, a, a snippet of two minutes out of an interview that probably lasted uh, several um, several minutes, so I, I don't know. But not in what he said. He did not mention me. Okay, thank I, you. Yeah, I think that was the extended version that uh, Ben hasn't had time to to have a look at while moderating as well. Um, but it, it, that inspired a lot of confusion in my eyes as well. And also because what relevance does that have to UCO, which is what happened yesterday? It's, uh, it's very confusing. Um, I really think Macron just wanted himself to sound smart to himself, honestly. Um, you know how we say don't attribute to malice what can be exp- adequately exp- explained by incompetence or stupidity? Well, I think that, you know, don't attribute to malice what can be explained by uh, narcissism, I guess. No, okay, that's fair enough. Um, And while I'm up here, uh, I'd just like to congratulate everybody who runs the space on the the interview with Mick Ryan uh, last night, which was was really, really informative. And I'm I'm looking forward to that going up, hopefully, on the the YouTube channel. It's Uh, already on the YouTube channel. Oh, super. Well, that's my afternoon sorted. Thank you. There we go. Excellent. Uh, sorry, so different to wait. I, we just wanted to cover that because uh, John brought up the topic an hour ago. And we couldn't cover it appropriately because my French is awful and Ben hadn't seen it by that point yet. So, so Joe. No problem whatsoever. Um, I'm 
<clears throat> I apologise for changing, changing tack 